0: Tommy Bolt was a, was a professional golfer back in the day. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, Tommy Bolt was known for his uh, sort of bad attitude, terrible temper. He was a club thrower even on the PGA Tour. Uh, his nicknames even follow him into the Pro Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, he is known there as Tommy Terrible and Tommy Tempestuous and And Tommy Bolt, he was in a tournament in Los Angeles. This is in the, I think, the 1950s, as the story goes. And he didn't have a regular caddy, so we got matched up with this caddy in, in L.A. who was known for being quite chatty on the course. And Tommy Bolt knew he was that day in no mood for a chatty caddy. So he sternly warned this guy, listen, you don't say a word to me. During this round, you get it? And this guy, was he knew who Tommy Terrible was, and he said, yes. If I ask you a question, I want yes or no answers. Understood? Oh, yeah. So they start play, um, and, and Bolt is playing pretty well till he hits, hits a ball off the side of the fairway into some trees, and he and his caddy go, and, and they're, they're searching. And Tommy Bolt, he finds the ball, and he approaches it, and, and he, he looks... And he's got to hit this ball under a low-hanging branch, but then he's got to go over a water hazard to the green. And he looks at it and thinks he's angry anyway. And he thinks I can do this. And so he looks at his caddy. He says, What do you think? Five iron? Caddy says, No, Mr. Bolt. Of course he gets mad because he's being disagreed with. He says, What do you mean? No. I'm going to hit this thing, you know, right under the branch, right over the water. No, Mr. Bolt. Give me the five iron one more time. No, Mr. Bolt, no. He goes over. He's really mad now. He grabs that five iron out of the bag himself, approaches the ball, says, watch this, swings right under the branch, right over the water hazard, and right up on the green. A beautiful shot. Turns around, tosses the club at the caddy and says, you can talk now. What do you think about that? And he says, Mr. Bolt, that wasn't your ball. (laughs) True story. And it's a good illustration of the danger of arguing something when you don't have all of the information that you need. There's always danger in getting in an argument when you don't know everything that needs to be known. We're going to see an example of that in the book of Matthew. Where we're at in the book of Matthew, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. Maybe I should stop saying that because we have like eight chapters of the last week of Jesus' life. I'm going to be saying that for a while. But it's the very end of Jesus' life and the political and religious leaders of Israel, where we're at in the section within that section is... One at a time, these different groups of Israel's leadership are going to be approaching Jesus with little traps. They're trying to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people because they want to get rid of Jesus, but they feel like they have to do it in a way that doesn't hurt their own popularity. Today, it's the Sadducees that take their turn. The Sadducees, a little background before we read, they were a religious and a political group They were very small in numbers and very large in power and influence. In this era of Israel, all of the chief priests were Sadducees. And so the the people in the pool uh, of high priests that uh, were all Sadducees. The Romans made sure the chief priest was always a Sadducee because the Romans and the Sadducees had something of a deal, a little brother-in-law deal, where we will... We will allow you to be the chief priests if you make sure there's no problem for, for us Romans there in Jerusalem and Israel. Um, because they're sort of this elite. There's few of them, but they, they have lots of the power. They, that's why they don't figure too much in the Gospels, not nearly as much as uh, their enemies, the Pharisees, did. They pretty much ignored Jesus. Until the hubbub surrounding Jesus got to the point where they felt like it could get some unwanted attention from the Romans. And then, by this point, they decide Jesus either has to be controlled or marginalized. And eventually they'll go along with the plan to have him eliminated a little more permanently. Permanently, they think, anyway. Anyway. Matthew, the the first thing almost that Matthew's going to tell us today about the Sadducees, is he just kind of says it as an aside in case his original audience didn't know. He'll say that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't. In fact, they didn't believe much in the way of supernatural and spiritual things. They didn't believe in angels, for example. Uh, they, They were fairly secular, which sounds weird to say about the party of the high priest. But they were secular, much in the same way that most of Israel, most Jews today around the world are very secular. They're not terribly spiritual, the uh, people that believe in a lot of the supernatural. And the reason, probably, that they don't believe in, in a lot of that stuff is they don't accept all of their scriptures. What we call the Old Testament is the Hebrew scriptures and the the Sadducees only bought about this much the only thing they accepted as authoritative scripture was the Torah or the Pentateuch the first five books of our Bible the Genesis and the law and here's why they were secularists they said the law is what tells us um, how to live it's what governs what's right and wrong. All we want to know is what's right and wrong, how to keep order, and that's all we care about. So we don't, we don't have much interest in the rest of that spiritual, supernatural gobbledygook. And that's the group that uh, comes to take their turn, trying Jesus, trying to discredit him. And it's interesting how they do it for a number of reasons. What they're going to do is they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to not directly try to discredit Jesus. What they're going to do is try to discredit the idea of the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus had apparently been so clear in his teaching that the resurrection from the dead was central to his message that the Sadducees know if they can discredit resurrection well, then Jesus gets discredited right along with it because resurrection was central to his message. So they're going to come to Jesus with this hypothetical situation about the resurrection from the dead that they think makes believing in resurrection ridiculous. And if they can discredit resurrection, they'll discredit Jesus with it. Okay, let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 22, We're going to read verses 23 through 33. In the New American Standard, which is in the pew in front of you or under the chair in front of you, it reads this way. On that day, so the same day that the last group came to test Jesus, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus and questioned Him, asked Him, Teacher, Moses said, and then here's a quote from Moses, the part of the scriptures they believe. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Verse 25. Here's their hypothetical. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first brother married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So, also the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. Verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Your Bible might have a footnote that says that can be translated, You are deceived. You are deceived, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. There's our passage. In the first half of that passage, these Sadducees, they, they come and then bring this hypothetical situation to Jesus. They think this constitutes like the worst case scenario for resurrection. Their case, it sounds really weird to us. It, wouldn't have seemed weird to a first century Jew, even though I'm, I don't know that they were still doing this in Israel in the first century. But it has to do with a legal custom called leveret marriage, which is like saying brother-in-law marriage. And here's, what well, it's in the law. They quote Deuteronomy 25, 5 to Jesus. Leveret marriage means this. If a man gets married and... He doesn't have children, and he dies. His next oldest brother was legally required to marry the widow. And the first son born to that union would legally be considered the, the dead brother's child. And that was, you had to do that. I'll put faces to this. I'll use my sons, Ike and Cedric. And Ike, I apologize in advance. You're about to die in this story. Okay, but you're the oldest, it's the way it goes. Um, so Ike gets engaged, gets married. He and his new wife don't have any children, and the unthinkable happens. Ike passes away. Cedric would have had no choice but to marry his sister-in-law, Ike's wife. And then Cedric's first son, biologically his, but because Ike, as the oldest, was set to receive a double portion of our estate, Cedric's first son would be legally considered Ike's and would inherit Ike's portion of our vast estate. (laughs) Like, he would get old blue and everything. (laughs) Uh, Right, that would be be the deal, okay? I'm not going to go into why that was a thing this morning. If you're interested, I can point you to a sermon that we have recorded from Genesis where I Uh, talked about why that was a thing in ancient Israel. I'm not sure they were even still doing it in in Jesus' day, but um, regardless, here's what they're they're doing. So they bring this, here's their scenario. They say, all right, Jesus, this is what God said has to happen. Let's say there's seven brothers. First one gets married, doesn't have kids, he dies. Second one does the right thing, what God told him to do. Marries his sister-in-law. They don't have children, he dies. Third one does what God said he was supposed to do. Marries his sister-in-law twice over. They don't have any children, he dies. Fourth brother decides there needs to be a bit of an investigation because something's a little fishy. I made that part up, that would have been me. All the way down to all seven brothers have married this woman, none of them had any children, and then they all die, and then she dies too. It's really, it's more of a feel-good sort of story. Just a heartwarming. <laughs> Do you see the conundrum that they are? They think they're creating. The, the question they ask then, verse 28, in this resurrection, Jesus, you think is real, but you know any smart person knows it's not whose wife of the seven will she be? Because they all married. Do you see the problem they're creating? What they're saying is, if the resurrection is perfect, only one of these guys gets to be married for all of eternity. The rest of them have to be alone. How can life be perfect? And, and yet, six of these guys have to be alone for all of eternity. How do you decide? It's a ridiculous sort of scenario, but you know, it's a good question. Maybe if they would have stopped at two or three brothers, you know, maybe today they would ask this question this way or raise this scenario this way. Who of us either aren't or don't know somebody very closely that are remarried for whatever reason? Right? Right? Everybody. Let's assume, well, I can tell you this. For whatever reason someone is remarried, it's because this world is broken in some way. Right? Because either people are broken or our bodies are broken. And you might be remarried because your spouse got some sort of diagnosis or had some kind of accident that wouldn't have happened if this world were perfect. And now you're remarried. and That's a blessing. Or you might be remarried because people are broken and hard-hearted and selfish and addicted and abusive and whatever else, right? Well, what happens in those scenarios for all of us who who maybe have been remarried for whatever reason, in those scenarios where all parties involved come to believe in Jesus as their Savior they go to heaven, what now? Because listen, once, once you're in heaven, once you're on the new earth, how many sins are forgiven when you get there? All of them. Well, so how much, how much consequences of your earthly sin do you have to pay for when you're, when you're there? None. None. So, so what do we do? No matter why, no matter how, no matter for what reason I'm remarried, what do we do? Because maybe, maybe I got myself divorced because I was an addictive, abusive jerk. But I still loved my wife. And I made it to heaven by the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. And when I get there, I find I'm supposed to be 100% forgiven but the wife I abused married someone else. How's that going to be heaven for me? How can that be perfect? You see the problem they're creating? Here's what they're saying. Here's, this is a pretty effective argument. It's a good question. If you say the resurrection is perfection, you tell me how even God could straighten that out. The rest of the passage is Jesus answering that question. And he's not going to say, the real question is, you tell us which brother gets to be married. And Jesus' question, or Jesus' response is going to be to tell him, no, you're way off base. To, to use my earlier illustration, it's like Jesus is saying, you guys are trying to make the perfect shot with the wrong ball. Like you're swinging at the wrong ball. I can't really answer your question because you're so far off base. You're not playing the right game once we get into eternal life. And Jesus is going to tell them that, that they have a problem. Here's the main point. I want to talk about marriage in eternity, but don't miss the main point. The main point is we're not to have the problem the Sadducees had. And it's a very easy problem to have. And Jesus is going to say there's two reasons why people get the problem the Sadducees wound up with. Looking with me at verse 29. Here's their problem and the two reasons they have the problem. Jesus answered them, You are deceived. That's their problem. And there's two reasons why they got themselves deceived. Do you see what the two reasons are? You're deceived. Why? Because... You don't know the scriptures. And because you don't know or you don't trust or you don't believe in the power of God. You want to see a recipe for leaving yourself, you, open to being deceived? Here it is. Ignore the scriptures. Don't get to know the Bible. Or don't believe in God's power to pull off what he put in there. Believe there are better ways to do things Believe there are better things to believe in. Believe there are better things to pursue. Because God really couldn't make life perfect if I live according to what He put in His Word. That is the recipe for leaving yourself open to deception. That's the real problem. And I think this is the heart of this passage. Everything else Jesus says in this passage is going to tell him about either why they don't know this, how he knows they don't know the Scriptures, or how they're ignoring the power of God. Now, I want to look at those two reasons for deception one at a time, even though I I won't take it in the same order that, that Jesus does. First, their first problem, or their problem is they're deceived. The first reason they're deceived is they don't know the Scriptures. This is an especially... Actually, Seth, click me backwards one, would you? And then put the cursor back... This is an especially obvious problem for the Sadducees. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't even know what the Scriptures are. Right? You remember the, the, the description I gave about them? They ignore every part of the Hebrew Scriptures that fall between Joshua and Malachi. Right? So they, they don't know the Scriptures. They don't even know what the Scriptures are. If they knew the Scriptures... They would not doubt resurrection. You know why? Is, is there resurrection in the Old Testament? Absolutely. I'm just going to show you one. We looked at a couple of more in, uh, in Sunday school this morning, and there are other places we could look as well. But here's, I think, well, just the one I wanted to share this morning. In The book of Daniel. This is a book they don't agree is authoritative scripture. Daniel, God communicates this to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Multitudes of people who sleep in the dust of the earth, who die, will awake, will come back to life, will be resurrected. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, which means they know God, will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Daniel, very clearly told about resurrection in the Old Testament. Jesus, if you guys knew the scriptures, we wouldn't be having this argument about the reality of the resurrection because you'd know. That's why the Pharisees didn't doubt resurrection. They just didn't believe Jesus was the pathway to it. By the way, how do we know the Sadducees weren't right about the Old Testament? A bit of an aside. Should we accept the scriptures between Joshua and Malachi in our Old Testaments? Yeah, why? You know why? Because we are Christians. Root word is Christ. We can go through the Gospels like we have. Jesus quoted as authoritative scripture from every section of the Old Testament. That's why we know it's the authoritative word of God, because Jesus believed that it was the authoritative word of God. But Jesus doesn't take them to Daniel. He does quote scripture to them, but it wouldn't do Jesus much good to quote Daniel to some people who don't believe Daniel is the authoritative word of God, right? So Jesus is going to take them and show them about resurrection from the part of the Old Testament that they, uh, they believe, they accept. So we're back in, in Matthew 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Now, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God in the part that you believe and accept? Haven't you read the story where God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Haven't you read that story? Everyone there had read that story. Do you know where God said that from? Do you know what was happening when God said that and who He said it to God spoke those words. I am the God of... Right to Moses from the burning bush. This is, not, this is not taken from some footnote of Judaism or the scriptures. This is right at the heart of, of their scriptures and their, their, their culture and their everything. And then here's what Jesus does with that. He says, guys... God spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. which, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead. They'd been dead about twice as long as America has been a country. I mean, they'd been dead many, many moons. And Jesus says, when God showed up in the burning bush, that story you know very well, and he said, I am, I continue to be the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, didn't you notice how God talks about those three men as if they were still alive. You know why? Because they're still alive. If you knew the scriptures, even the ones you claim to know, you wouldn't doubt the resurrection. If they knew the scriptures, they would know what the author of Hebrews said about Abraham and Sarah Abraham and Sarah, they were promised. Their descendants would get the promised land, but they wouldn't get to settle down and live in one place in the promised land. But they didn't get all bent out of shape. You know why? Because the author of Hebrews says they had their eyes on a better place to live. A heavenly place to live. The patriarchs knew this life wasn't all there was. We could discuss Romans Chapter 4, but for time's sake, I think we will. You write that down. Paul sees resurrection from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 4. Look that up later when I ain't preaching. So, their first problem that has led to their big problem that they're deceived is they don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be deceived like you are, but they have another reason for their problem. Back to verse 29. Jesus said, you guys are deceived because you don't know the scriptures and, second part, second reason for their problem, you don't know or you don't trust or you don't believe in the power of God. And here's why in verse 30, right away Jesus says how they failed to believe in the power of God. Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they, he's talking about the the seven brothers and the wife, people in general. For in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, quickly, I just want to say this. He says they're like angels in heaven. He did, Jesus did not say people become angels. Okay? Angels are angels, people are people, and he doesn't change one into the other. But Jesus is saying, at least when it comes to marriage, in the resurrection and eternal life, we'll have this in common with angels. What is it? We won't be married. It's like angels aren't married. You know why God didn't tell angels to get married? Because he didn't put them on earth and say, I want you to like, procreate and populate the earth. Now, does anybody have a problem? Does that make anybody uncomfortable? Does does anybody sort of wish that wasn't in the Bible? Because Jesus just really clearly said, in eternal life, we won't be married. Now, you might not have a problem at all. You might be sitting there hearing this, that you won't have to be married to the person you're married to for all of eternity, and like you have this amen just boiling up out of you—that you know, you're going to shout out your first ever amen. Don't do that. Don't do that. I got a full week ahead of me, and I don't have time to meet with you two. Um... <laughs> but in all seriousness, if you're like me and you love your marriage, this one's tough to swallow. how, and this is, their, this is the conundrum they think they're raising, how can my life someday be perfect but maybe less married to this woman? That's hard for me to, to get my head around. I don't like that very much, if I'm honest. I can't imagine my my life without being married to Rachel. I don't want to imagine my life without being married to Rachel. So you know what the only thing I can do is when when I get to this right here? And, And listen, listen, we're promised resurrection. You know the difference between resurrection and just the afterlife? Resurrection means I'm going to be me for all of eternity. I'm not going to be reincarnated into some, I'm not going to be an angel. I'm not going to come back as some other person. I'm going to be me. And Rachel's going to be Rachel. And this says, if I'm reading it right, that we're not going to be married. Now, how can life be perfect? And us not be married, but still be who we are. That's... That's really hard. You know what the only thing I can do is? Let me show you. The only thing I can do is know the scriptures and believe that God has the power to pull off what he puts in the scriptures. The only thing I can do is say, I don't know how that could possibly be true, but I know it's in the scriptures and I believe God will do what he promises. My life will be perfect more perfecter than I could ever imagine for all of eternity. Even though we won't be married, at least in the the way that we are married right now. Jesus is hinting, I believe, that eternal life is so much bigger than, than our idea of perfection can even hold. C.S. Lewis took his stab at explaining this very passage this way. And I love his story. i got to be careful telling this one, adult content sticker. Uh, but here's C.S. Lewis's story. Uh, he tells the story of a dinner party, and the adults were in one room, and, and not in a lewd way, but they were, they were talking about, shall we say, the physical aspect of love and marriage. Follow me there. And someone said they believed it was, you know, the, the body's highest capacity for pleasure. And what they didn't know is right around the corner, one of the kids was no longer in bed. And this little boy heard what they were talking about. And he came around the corner when he heard about, you know, the highest bodily joy and, and, and pleasure. And he walked in and everybody's like, oh, No. And the the little boy says, I have a question about what you were talking about. Do they eat chocolate when they're doing that? (laughs) And they laughed, just like you did. And he said, no, nobody eats the chocolates when they're, and uh, the little boy says, well, then I don't know what it is, but it can't be the highest bodily pleasure if chocolate's not involved. (laughs) And then I'll quote C.S. Lewis more directly here. Here's what he says. He says, you see, the boy knows chocolate. He doesn't know the positive thing that excludes it. And then he says, we are in the same position. We don't have the capacity to understand true perfection that's awaiting us. It's like, take a four-year-old. Take a four-year-old and and put a full-size candy bar in front of that four-year-old. And then say, now, honey, you can either eat that candy bar or, or if you don't, if you refuse that candy bar, when you graduate from high school, I'll give you a full scholarship to whatever college or university you want to go to. What's a four-year-old going to do? He or she is going to devour that chocolate bar. Why? Because they get it. They don't understand the joy of being debt-free after college. They don't understand college. They don't understand any of that stuff. But they understand the joy that comes from eating a candy bar. Like, that's us. Here's what Jesus is saying. Guys, if you don't think God can pull off perfection, no matter how bad, and, and still have you be you. If you don't think God can't pull off perfection, no matter how bad you have fouled stuff up in life down here, either you don't know the scriptures or you do not know how powerful our God is. I'll take my stab at wrapping my mind around this no, no marriage thing in eternal life. This is where this becomes what's called eisegesis, where I read into the text instead of explaining what's into the text to you. That's exegesis. So this is, uh, this is my opinion, okay? This is how I try to make sense of this. Um, in eternity, for the believer, so we're talking about the ones Daniel said, or D- Daniel wrote, the ones who are raised to e- eternal life and glory. Every one of our relationships in eternity will be better than the best Marriage on earth now. Okay? I can't be dogmatic about this. I can't prove this. But I believe, I believe me and Rachel will know each other forever and ever and ever. The reason I believe that is because I will still be me. And I don't think I can be me. Again, God can blow my mind later. But I don't think I can be me without knowing who my parents were, who my siblings are, who my children are. And you cannot know those things without knowing marriage. Just again, my opinion, people who love the Lord disagree with me there. But I believe we will know each other forever and ever and ever and ever. I believe we will know we were married. But most, the reasons that I love Rachel more than I love the rest of you and I do, okay, especially Derek. But the reasons I love Rachel more than I love the rest of you will either disappear in eternity or they will expand to encompass everyone, okay? I love Rachel because, let me count the ways, sorry. No, no. I know this woman is in my corner and she wants what is best for me. She wants my like, success and my good in a way that I can't trust everyone else in the world does. And we can, together, we can sort of wring ourselves out in a day or in a week. And then, honestly, life doesn't get better for us than when we just go in our house and we are there by ourselves and the rest of the hurtful world where we've wrung ourselves out ain't there. And we sort of circle the wagons and we are there together. That's why we love each other and we need each other because everything else is so messed up out here. In eternity, we won't have to worry about the messed upness anywhere. We won't ever wring ourselves out. Everyone will be perfectly loyal to you in your eternal life because you will all be loyal completely to Jesus Christ. You'll have no ability to sin. There'll be no jealousy or no envy. There'll be no hidden motives. There won't be anything like secret. You'll be able to trust everyone completely so that I believe we can still know each other and know we were married, but we can, have, we can have... Can you get better than perfect? Well, if I have a perfect relationship with Derek in eternity, and I have a perfect relationship with Rachel in eternity, what's the difference? And there is no. there are no physical desirous sort of, sort of needs. And by the way, if you don't think heaven can be heaven without sex... You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You're not waiting for 72 virgins in heaven. And I've never known what the virgins did to, uh, to, uh, to deserve that sort of afterlife, by the way. Again, I can't imagine all that, but I believe it. I think what we learn. Again, don't miss the main point. The main point of the passage. Jesus did not teach this passage to teach us what what uh, eternal life is like. This is just a very. He just gives us a little sniff of eternal life. Here's what we're supposed to learn: If you want to protect against being deceived, get to know the scriptures and then believe in God's power to make good on what he put in the scriptures. That's how we keep ourselves from being deceived. We get deceived much more easily in our lives when we don't get to know this book. Because listen, there's a lot of stuff, junk, that is like almost Christian. It seems good, it seems like, man, that sounds okay. And if I don't know the scriptures, I can be swallowing stuff that is false and it is deception. And the only way I know truth from error is if I know what's in this book. That's why a daily diet of the Bible is important because we don't want to be deceived. Also, we get deceived much more easily when we don't trust in God's power to accomplish what he put in this book. And that can take on lots of manifestations. How many of you have ever been in a situation like this? You know, I know what the Bible says, but if I do what the Bible says, I'm gonna miss out on this and that, and, that, and there's no way I can be happy There's no way I can have joy if I live my life based on what's in this book. In this case, in this situation, I got to do something different. Do you know why I'm deceived and that's what I'm going to do? Because I don't believe in the power of God to give me joy and to be what's after my best if I live by what He put in this book. I, I think you can trace every deception from a failure to know the scriptures. For failure to believe in God's power to accomplish our best by what he put down in this book. And sometimes, here's why this is so important to get down. I'm gonna know the scriptures and I'm gonna trust God's power to do it. But sometimes that's, that's all I have left. That's all I can do. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it, if I would get somebody else up here to describe their marriage it could be they wouldn't tell they wouldn't tell you hey what a joy my marriage is Somebody might stand up here and just tell a heartbreaking story of what it's like to try to live And it's very in the situation I am it would be very easy to say listen if I want to be happy I got to do these other things I got to do something else Sometimes all I can do is say, listen, if I start desiring someone else I'm not married to, if I start doing some of these other things, that's not what it says in this book, and I don't know how that's best. But I know the scriptures. And all I can do is believe that God has the power to accomplish his best by living this way. Would you pray with me? Father God, we have sang this morning about your ancient word, ever true. God, we've, we have sang also about its power to change. And then we heard, as Jesus outlined, a very dangerous problem, that not knowing your word and not believing in your power to sustain us and give us joy and make us content by living according to your word. That's the, that is where the danger lies. We get deceived, we get off track, and we wind up shipwrecked. God, I pray that every one of us would more and more get to know the scriptures, not just so that we could have more knowledge, so that we could just rest in your power to accomplish what's in there and that we would more and more be changed into the likeness of your son according to your word. that we might trust that your joy, your truth, your hope is where our contentment will lie. Thanks for your word, for opening it, illuminating it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.